science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. This year we are celebrating the 150th anniversary of the periodic table. First formulated, of course, by the famous uh, Russian chemist uh, Mendeleev. And uh, in honor of the periodic table, a contest was run for prospective poets. And there uh, have been a number of entries, and I want to give you one of them, and we will ask you the question, what element is being referred to? So here we go. Listen to the poem. When your fire starts, you're impossible to stop, burning brilliant white even underwater. Seeing your fireworks, snapping my flashbulb photos, I feel your intensity is also a part of me. You make my heart beat. That was a the third place poem in this contest, which had many, many entries. So the question is, what element are they talking about in that little poem? If you know the answer, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or of course, you can always text your messages to 514-800, and obviously you can call about other scientific issues that may have uh, come your way as well. This morning on the trivia show, I posed a question about the link between the herbicide glyphosate and the first atomic bomb. I think that was a pretty challenging kind of question. And of course, I try to make them challenging because these days it is so easy to Google answers. Well, what was the common link there? Common link is the Monsanto company. And the herbicidal properties of glyphosate were discovered uh, by Monsanto scientist John Franz. That was back in 1970. And the company brought uh, glyphosate to market as Roundup in 1974. But long before Monsanto became an agriculture product company, it was involved in the Dayton project that was tasked with developing the initiator for the atom bomb. And uh, therein lies an interesting story. And I will tell you about it. And we're going to go back for a moment to 2007, when Vladimir Putin, who was already at that time president of, uh, of Russia, strode up to a podium and announced that George Koval would be honored with the prestigious gold star as a hero of the Russian Federation. Well, that was a very interesting proclamation. And it was really noteworthy. You know why? Well, Koval, who had just passed away the year before at the age of 92, was an American. So what does it take for an American to become a Russian hero? You know what? Providing the critical information needed to construct the atom bomb, well, that will do it. And that's what George Koval did. You see, he was actually a Soviet spy. Uh, Mr. Koval, as President Putin stated, operated under the pseudonym Delmar and provided information that helped speed up considerably the time it took for the Soviet Union to develop an atomic bomb on its own. What an interesting story Koval makes. He was born in the, actually born in Iowa, but he was born of Russian immigrant parents. But uh, his parents moved for a while back to Russia, or at that time the, the Soviet Union, and he went with them. And it was there that he was recruited by the uh, Secret Service, basically, and was trained by military intelligence as a spy. He came back to the U.S. in 1940, where he 
he was drafted into the army. And of course, they knew that he would be drafted into the army because he was that age. And that was one of the keys to why he was being trained as a spy. And by 1944, he had managed to secure a position as a health physics officer. And he worked at the Oak Ridge Laboratories in Tennessee. And researchers there were part of the Manhattan Project. That, of course, was the the project uh, aimed at developing the atom bomb. And their researchers were bombarding the nuclei of plutonium and uranium atoms with neutrons. Why? Because the energy released when these nuclei are split into smaller fragments, or as the expression we use, fission, that was the key to developing the atom bomb. And Koval began reporting on these activities to his handler. However, the opportunity to make a real contribution to the Soviet nuclear program came in 1944, when he was transferred to a top-secret lab in Dayton, that, of course, is in Ohio. It was there that critical work was being pursued to develop an initiator for fission reactions. Once a fission reaction begins, it generates neutrons, and that then triggers what we call a chain reaction. But in order to get the whole thing going, you need a source of neutrons in the first place. And uh, that can be produced by exposing beryllium to polonium, particular isotope of polonium we know as polonium-210, it's naturally radioactive and it emits alpha particles, which are tiny little particles composed of two protons and neutrons. And they're like minuscule bullets. And in this case, they can be fired at uh, the nucleus of beryllium atoms, and that will then knock out uh, a neutron. And that is what starts the whole reaction going. Well, polonium had been first described way back in 1898 by Marie and Pierre Curie. And they had processed thousands of uh, pounds of uranium ore, known as pitchblende. And they finally managed to isolate a few micrograms of a residue that had much greater radioactivity than could be accounted for by uranium. And they surmised that the residue must contain a novel element. Marie and... uh, Incidentally, you should know that she is the term who coined, she's the one who coined the term radioactive. And uh, she suggested that this was a new element, uh, calling it polonium after her mother country. And uh, in order to produce the initiator for the bomb, they had to find a more efficient way of procuring polonium because they weren't going to process huge amounts of, uh, of uranium ore. That was just too difficult. And this became the Dayton Project. Well, back in 1942, General Leslie Groves Jr., who was the director of the Manhattan Project, had approached the Monsanto company because the company had great chemical expertise and they wanted help with finding a way to produce this initiator. And that task fell to Charles Allen Thomas, who later was to become president of of Monsanto. And uh, they started a research project uh, trying to isolate polonium from a different kind of ore from lead oxide. That wasn't very successful. But luckily, while they were working on this, uh, researchers at the Manhattan Project had developed a nuclear reactor that was capable of uh, producing uh, polonium. So now all that they had to do was to isolate polonium from uh, residual bismuth, uh, which, from which it was made. And this was soon mastered, and that allowed polonium to be produced for both the uranium bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and the plutonium bomb that annihilated Nagasaki. And it was the method 
uh, of production in Dayton of this initiator that Koval transmitted to the Soviets, and it resulted in their developing a nuclear bomb much sooner than the Americans had uh, expected. And it was for this reason that uh, he, uh, Koval was given this Medal of Honor by uh, the Russian government and was bestowed posthumously by President Putin. But there's an interesting footnote to this story, and that is the Soviet Union became a large producer of uh, polonium-210, and um, that played a role in the alleged assassination of a defector from the Soviet Union by the name of uh, Litvinenko, Alexander Litvinenko, who had uh, been in the Russian Secret Service but had run afoul of the government because uh, he had criticized Putin and had suggested that uh, Putin had ordered various assassinations and he had links to the underworld. So he left Russia. He ended up in England asking for asylum. And uh, it was there that he was uh, allegedly killed by the Russians who managed to put a small amount of poison in the form of polonium-210, and it's enough to have a few micrograms of this in your food. It was supposedly put into a cup of tea, and uh, it wasn't long before Litvinenko died. And as President Putin opined, that, uh, opined Mr. Litvinenko, unfortunately, is not Lazarus, meaning that he would not rise from the dead. And it's a good thing for Putin that he didn't because he had a lot of information about uh, Putin. goes without saying that Litvinenko was not awarded a gold star emblemic of the hero of the Soviet Union. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We will check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, now it's not you who need answers. I need answers because I asked the question about a poem. When your fire starts, you're impossible to stop. Burning brilliant white, even underwater. Seeing your fireworks, snapping my flashbulb photos. I feel that your intensity is also part of me. You make my heart beat. Question is, what element was that referring to? And uh, I think we'll go to Bernie. Hey, Bernie. Hi. The answer is? Right, phosphorus? No, it isn't. It isn't. Gee, I, I thought that you'd get that for sure. Okay, sorry. We're, we're going to go to Stephen. Hey, Stephen. I thought it was phosphorus. Could it be magnesium? Yes, it is magnesium. Very good. There you go. <laughs> How do you know that? Um, well, I know magnesium burns underwater. Yeah. Uh, just from uh spy movies and things like that okay very good all right uh, thanks for the answer and of course magnesium used to be used in flashbulbs but flashbulbs no longer exist and uh, even before flashbulbs uh, they would use magnesium powder and you'll see that in some of the old movies where they hold up this little device and and it flashes to produce enough light to get pictures because in the early days of photography the film was very, very insensitive, and you needed a lot of, of light. So that's quite uh, correct. The answer to that is magnesium. Okay. Um, you know, one of the uh, most important things about science is communication, because no matter what work you do, if you can't communicate it, it's useless. Now, obviously, in the world of science, uh, it is important to communicate among scientists. 
because as Newton once said when he was uh, asked about how he had been able to come up with so many clever ideas, he said it was because I had stood on the shoulders of giants. Uh, the fact is that science is a collaborative effort, and uh, you have to know about what others have done before, what they are doing at the same time. And these days, of course, we rely on the peer-reviewed scientific literature for scientists to get information. But for that information to be transmitted to the public, we rely on, often on the media. And that's where trouble crops in, because very often reporters are not all that well trained in science, and they uh, don't know exactly how to interpret the scientific research, and they tend to sensationalize a lot of the reports and um, don't get the message across uh, well enough. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why our office at McGill, the Office for Science and Society, was created to separate sense from nonsense and to make sure that people do get proper scientific information. And one of our tasks also is to uh, develop new communicators of science. And of course, at McGill, we have a wealth of undergraduate students uh, who uh, are very interested in communication and would like to forge careers in that, that area. And uh, we like to give them a chance to see what it is that they can do. And uh, I have... Uh, such a potential communicator with me uh, in studio today, and we're going to listen to her attempt uh, at communicating an interesting little piece of scientific information. Uh, but before that, let me introduce you to Morgan Sweeney, uh, who's a McGill uh, undergrad. And uh, Morgan, tell me, how is it that you came to McGill? Hey, everybody. I'm really excited to be on the radio. Um, I chose McGill because due to my kind of nomadic upbringing, um, I was lucky enough to live in Paris, France, and that was my favorite place I'd ever lived. Um, and I was looking for an atmosphere kind of similar, like an urban setting where people were able to get around by public transportation, uh, where there was this French kind of European influence. Um, but once I found Montreal, I kind of fell in love with it for all that it is in its own right. Um, the incredible kindness of the people, the... The bagels, the smoked meat. <laughs> the lively <laughs> art scene. Um, and McGill itself, it's just such an incredible school. Um, there's so many people from all over the world who are so passionate about the things that they're there to learn about. And I've been lucky enough to, yeah, have four fantastic years there. Now, uh, I know that you're majoring and you're also minoring in what? So my major is cognitive science, which um, at McGill is an interdisciplinary program offered by the Bachelors of Arts and Science. We take classes from neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, linguistics, and computer science. Um, my minor is in communication studies, which is also a pretty interdisciplinary study of not just the media that we use every day these days, but also different technologies and how they've influenced society over a historical time period. So they're both incredibly interesting subjects. And I know that you've, do, you've done some writing on, on scientific issues for uh, at McGill. Right? Yes. Um, the McGill Tribune, which is one of a few different student newspapers. Um, I was a staff writer for their science technology section last year. So I would write a new piece every two weeks um, describing a different scientific phenomenon that I thought would be interesting to students. Which is a challenge, right? Uh, writing a piece every uh, two weeks. I 
I know that from, <laughs> from having to produce a column for the Gazette uh, every week. And it certainly makes you think. And uh, uh, writing, though, is a very different thing from uh, doing what we are doing now on, on the radio because uh, you have to be somewhat less formal mm -hmm. and uh, you still have to try to make sure that people get the information that you want to get across. So that's why we thought that, you know, it would be pretty interesting to develop a little editorial on, I think, what amounts to be a rather unusual topic. <laughs> and uh, I know that we're, we're going to discuss elevators, right? <laughs> and most people don't think that there's a lot of scientific interest in, in discussing elevators, but I can tell you that, that uh, uh, you're going to be quite interested. But you know what? We are going to make you wait. Uh, because we do have to have some uh, commercial applications here. So we're going to take a break. We will listen to the news. And after that, we will have uh, Morgan uh, elevate you. Stand by. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we are actually going to conduct an experiment of sorts here. Uh, but let me uh, throw another question out at you before we do that, because we got that quick answer to the magnesium question. So here it is. What is the connection between Jean Harlow, the actress, and catalytic converters in cars? So we're looking for the connection between Jean Harlow and the catalytic converter in cars. You give us a call, 514-790-0800, or you can text us at 514-800. All right, now for our experiment. Uh, so I had introduced uh, Morgan uh, Sweeney to you. She's a McGill undergrad, and she's interested in science communication. We are trying to foster that. Uh, so we asked her to come up with a little piece, about three to four minutes long, and uh, see whether or not uh, she can inform you and entertain you. And you know what? After that, you can give us a call, and we'll take constructive criticism. <laughs> All right, Morgan, here we go. Have you ever pressed the call elevator button, watched it light up, waited for a second, and then pressed it again just to make sure it was coming? Have you ever been judged by the person standing next to the elevator who had clearly pressed it before you got there? Yeah, me either. Judging by the rate at which some people, myself not included, obviously, press buttons, they must offer some innate promise. But what makes some people so inclined to press these buttons multiple times? In 2002, a person who went by the username Taffer posed the same question on DVD Talk Forum a video reviewing website, clearly a very trustworthy source of scientific information. My personal favorite response is given by the user titled Super Mallet. Hidden behind the panel with the buttons is a live elevator operator like they used to have. Elevator companies tricked people into thinking that the elevators are automatic. When you press the button now, the other side of it pokes into the skin of the operator. If you press it repeatedly, it hurts them more, and thus they operate faster. So. Now you know the truth. I'm totally kidding. While the first elevators were actually operated by people, by the 1950s, electric operators had become vastly cheaper and more efficient than humans. And so all manually run elevators were replaced by mechanical ones. What determines the trajectory of an elevator now is typically an algorithm. So if we don't live in a world where live humans lurk behind buttons, why do people repeatedly press them? One reason is that people generally hate waiting. According to an article in Popular Mechanics, 
most people would rather wait 10 seconds for the elevator and spend 60 seconds inside than wait 30 seconds and spend 30 seconds getting to their destination, even though the first scenario takes 10 seconds longer. Maybe people subconsciously believe that pressing the button more frequently will shorten their wait time. If nothing else, it gives them something to do while they wait. Another factor to consider is that people love the feeling of control. In a New York Times article about the effect of pressing buttons, Professor Ellen J. Langer at Harvard University explains that perceived control, like that gained from pressing a button, quote, diminishes stress and promotes well-being. This could offer an explanation as to why people will press a button even when it's already eliminated, because they want to feel like they have control over a machine whose whereabouts are not really determined by them. While call elevator buttons really can change where an elevator stops, other buttons we encounter no longer serve the functions they were conceived for. Of the 3,250 pedestrian crosswalk signals in New York City, only 120 actually change their behavior based on the push of a button. The city of Toronto is following an NYC's lead, according to a CBC News article, which states that, quote, the buttons only really serve one purpose, to help people with visual impairments. Even though the signs will change from red to white without the push of a button, the button has been left as a placebo, so people can retain that sense of control they so crave and to give verbal cues for the visually impaired. Similarly, door close buttons in elevators older than 25 years serve no real function for the average citizen. Only firefighters and maintenance workers with the proper codes are able to activate them. This might also help explain why someone presses a floor number that has already been illuminated, such as the ground floor in an elevator going down. If this person knows the door close buttons don't work and chooses not to press them, they can signal the elevator that they are ready to go by pressing a floor key instead. More likely than not, however, anytime a person presses a button, especially when they press it repeatedly, it is to give themselves the illusion of control over their environment and to alleviate the anxiety of having to wait for a machine to dictate when they can go where. Even more than waiting, when someone steps into the elevator to go up a single floor, that's what really pushes my buttons. Very good. All right, we're standing by for your comments. I want to know if we have a, a fledgling uh, communication star in the studio here. Uh, and constructive comments, of course, are very welcome because, you know, obviously it's a first effort. And uh, we'll see if in the future we can uh, hone it. Although I don't think it needs uh, all that much uh, honing. So if you want to give us uh, some info on that, you can give us a call, 514-790-0800, or you can text your uh, messages to 514-800. And I'm Morgan, I, I know that you're interested in more than just communication, and you're telling me uh, of the air about some of your activities uh, other than academic, such as teaching yoga. I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've been practicing yoga for four years now, um, and I got my yoga teacher training 200-hour certification in the winter of 2017. So I've been teaching yoga for going on two years now. Um, what do you find is the major benefit of yoga? For me, it has definitely been an ability to increase awareness of both my body and my mind. Um, every time I practice, I find that afterwards I just feel so much lighter and more free and more aware of what's happening, less able to be caught up in the everyday nuisances. 
You know, the uh, uh, World Health Organization recognizes uh, yoga as a therapeutic method, and so does the United Nations. But I know that a lot of people have, have trouble relating to that because they, they kind of link it with some of the flaky stuff, mm. you know, uh, and, you know, standing on one foot on, on top of a tree stump <laughs> or something like that. But, I mean, real scientific yoga is not that, right? Uh, and there is really a, a, a lot of research uh, in yoga for, for sure. And uh, it can increase your flexibility. Uh, it does all kinds of things. I, I've, I must admit, I've never got really into it. <laughs> I, I, I like running on the treadmill and using the exercise yeah. machines. But, but I know that there are a lot of people who are very much uh, into yoga. How often do you do it? Um, it kind of depends on the season. In the summer, I practice every morning. Um, in the fall, depending on my schedule, depending on what studio is open, um, you know, the Montreal yoga scene is very diverse. There's a whole bunch of different studios. Um, and typically I practice Ashtanga yoga, which is one of the more traditional forms. Um, what does that mean that it's more traditional? So yoga actually originated as a spiritual practice, um, where the monks who would sit in meditation for eight plus hours a day, yeah. um, their bodies were suffering negative consequences from the lack of motion. So it was a way to show their devotion to the deity they believed in. Um, and it kind of evolved from there, from a very philosophical kind of spiritual background. Um, yeah, it's associated with both Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, obviously, it originated in India, but it's an incredible practice in the way that it allows you to connect to yourself, your body, and for those who are looking for it, the universe around you. And very yeah. good. Yeah. Interesting to hear. Okay, <laughs> we've got to take a break because we have to check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, Morgan, someone really loved the visual of somebody inside the elevator getting poked every time you press the, <laughs> the button. And uh, all kinds of comments, fantastic job, etc. Um, yeah, great. All, 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 all good comments thank you guys so much and someone asking how about learning science while doing yoga what do you say about that <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> um there actually is a lot of physiology and kind of body awareness um that you do learn while practicing and especially if your teacher kind of focuses on what muscle groups you're supposed to be activating what you're supposed to be stretching you really can learn a lot about the human body um while practicing yoga oh there you go all right. Well, besides practicing yoga, uh, you were telling me about this uh, documentary that you, you <laughs> saw. And uh, I mean, I've talked about flat earth uh, on the show many times. Uh, hard to believe that there are people actually out there who believe <laughs> that the earth is, is flat in, in this day and age. And I know that there's a documentary you were telling me about on Netflix, which I haven't seen, but I, I have to see. So what about it? Yeah, um, this documentary is called Behind the Curve. I think it came out last spring. Um, and it's a fantastic documentary in that it kind of tells the story of the Flat Earth movement, kind of the background of a lot of the people and how they found it, um, and especially kind of the leader of the movement. Um, and without, you know, the documentarians obviously poses impartial, but, and then they interview science and especially physicists um, who talk about, you know, all of the research that's shown the Earth is round. Um, and 
just the way that they kind of construct the narrative. Um, it focuses on the story of the people and kind of how they found something that bound them all together that made them special. It's more like a religion than anything, it seems like. It's just oh, well, a belief system. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, I mean, it's an interesting sociological phenomenon, yeah. you know, that uh, people can believe mm -hmm. this in spite of all the evidence. Oh, completely. Out there. And that's the coolest part of this documentary is that um, the flat earthers, they make these experiments to prove the black. But every time, and they're great scientific experiments. I mean, they have some engineers and some educated people. Yeah, this is what boggles the mind even more. But the incredible part is when they do the experiments, and they're valid experiments, they find that the Earth is round in both of the experiments they show in the documentary. And, you know, oh, there must be something wrong with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So... And I think they almost are forced to believe that, that you know, the moon landing was fake and all this because that would not mesh with their theory. Mm -hmm. We see the pictures of the Earth, you know, taken from the moon or, you know, from halfway uh, between the moon, obviously a sphere. Mm -hmm. So in order to explain that, they have to say that this, this was fake. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other world out there. The people believe that the moon landing was fake. Yeah. And... Uh, there's so many of these conspiracies mm -hmm. uh, out there, which it, it just is it's so interesting to see how people can believe stuff where the evidence is, is totally against it. Yeah. You know, including the 9-11 conspiracy mm -hmm. theorists who think that the buildings were brought down with, with explosives. Mm -hmm. Now, even setting aside, you know, the fact that we have all the technical explanations <laughs> and, and, and the, the visuals uh, yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh, to think how many people would have to keep quiet, uh, how many would have been involved in putting this uh, together? Yeah, you know, uh, it just it makes no sense at all. And yet, there are large numbers of people who believe in in all of this. Mm -hmm. And this is you know one of the reasons why we find that you know science communication is is so important, and uh, getting the message across of how we know what is true mm -hmm. and what isn't true and who should be believed and who shouldn't be believed. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, why why should people believe what, you know, I say uh, on this show? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, when it, whether I talk about, you know, cholesterol in eggs being harmful or, or not, which, of course, you can argue in either way, mm -hmm. what people believe. And the answer, of course, is, is that uh, in the real scientific world, we base our knowledge on what the scientific literature says, on what mm -hmm. the experiments have shown. Yeah. Uh, but it comes down to the interpretation of those experiments. And mm -hmm. as you just mentioned, I mean, they do the experiment, right? Yeah. And they interpret it in a different way because yeah. uh, they're biased. They mm -hmm. they want to show their point of view. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's so important to point out to people uh, how the scientific world works. Mm -hmm. How people get grants because mm -hmm. it takes a lot of money to go to science, oh, yeah. and uh, how you write up your results and submit them to a journal, mm -hmm. and how the editor of the journal sends it out to reviewers, mm -hmm. and that it's a back and forth business, and that the author of the paper doesn't know who the reviewers are, so there's no behind the scenes contacting yeah. them to try to pay them off, yeah, you know, <laughs> or thing like that, and that there's a lot of back and forth. And that many papers are rejected. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, for example, Journal of Medicine, which is you know, uh, one of the top-rated uh, medical journals in the world, uh, rejects most of the papers that are submitted, mm -hmm. not because 
they are not good or fraudulent or anything like that. They're just not high enough caliber. Mm -hmm. And this is another thing that you know we try to get across to, to people that just because something is published in the peer-reviewed literature doesn't mean that it is uh, great. Mm -hmm. There are many poor papers that are published and there are many that just do not add to the compendium of scientific knowledge that mm -hmm. yeah. even though they may have been very competently done. It's just that, you know, the money that was spent on it uh, wasn't a good investment. Mm -hmm. But the argument against that is how do you know where to allocate your money? Because how do you know where the research will eventually lead? Mm -hmm. And of course, there are many examples in, in science where um, there were great achievements that didn't start out with anything that seemed as if it was going to be memorable. Mm -hmm. uh, and the example that I always give is MRI, which mm -hmm. of course is, is one of the most useful medical techniques. And all started with a couple of uh, physicists finding a unique phenomenon of how protons behave when you put them in between the poles of a magnet. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the original paper, which was probably read by their parents, mm -hmm. and then, you know, maybe one or two other people, you would think how on earth could this uh, have an impact like it it eventually turned out to have so you never know what is worth funding and you know what is not worth funding and that's one of the uh, decisions that has to be made by funding uh, agencies yeah. so anyway we need communication we need uh, more and more communication we need people who who are on the forefront of science communicating and we need students who are good communicators to get into this area so that was your first uh, <laughs> shot at communicating and judging by all the com con uh, compliments that we got here uh, you did uh, a very very good job and uh, we are running out of time here but there's Thomas on the line we'll take a quick call here Thomas hey hi you got about a minute oh okay um, yeah I was looking to answer the Jean Harlow question yes uh, so she was uh, nicknamed the platinum blonde and very platinum good also a uh, catalyst that catalytic converters use to work. Bingo. Bingo. And okay. Jean Harlow was called the Platinum Blonde. Uh, she colored her hair. It's a very interesting story. She was made to color her hair because that was supposed to be, you know, her signature. Uh, unfortunately, she died at the age of 26 from kidney failure. Some people have even suggested that it was uh, all the chemicals that she used. I, I don't think that that is true. But the reason that there's a connection between uh, catalytic converters in cars and Jean Harlow is because she was called the platinum blonde and platinum is used as a catalyst in these converters. And that's it. We have run out of time. And uh, you know a lot more about elevator <laughs> button pushing than you ever thought you would know. Uh, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.